6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 9 through chapter 7. We talked about the virgin birth idea starting in Genesis 3. Where does it end, in a sense? And the concluding link, if you will, would be Revelation 12. So we might just review briefly Revelation chapter 12, which is a, um, a very key chapter in the book of Revelation. Some people say it's the most difficult. That's silly, because it's very straightforward. In Revelation chapter 12, John says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child, traveling at birth, and pain to be delivered. And when we get down to verse 5, she brought forth a male child as to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child is caught up to God and His throne. The question is, who's the woman? Many commentators you pick up say, well, the woman's the church. That's nonsense. I love the way Chuck Smith puts it. If this woman's the church, she's in deep trouble because she's pregnant. <laughs> and the church is the virgin bride, right? No, this woman is identified for us in the Scripture very clearly because when you get to Genesis 37, I believe it is anyway, where, where Je- uh, Joseph has his dreams, Jacob himself interprets it for us. The sun, moon, and twelve stars is an idiom from the book of Genesis on the nation Israel. So this woman that's clothed with the sun and the moon and her feet and the, on, on her uh, uh, head a crown of twelve stars is an idiom, an uh, Old Testament idiom for the twelve tribes. This woman is Israel, but in a very peculiar sense. She's Israel in the sense that it started with Eve. The seed that she is bearing is the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15, the Redeemer. She being with child. And by the way, the, Israel brought forth the Messiah. The church didn't. The church derived from his appearance. He didn't derive from the church's appearance. And, but verse 3 says, By the way, there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Who is this character? Don't guess. You can look it down verse 9. It tells you. The great red dragon cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This is Satan. Now, What's interesting, and I'm not going to develop the whole story here, but just to give you the flavor of this, you can look at the Bible from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 as a warfare. Satan, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on, knows that there's going to be a Redeemer. And it's going to be the seed of the woman. So his first maneuver is to break that somehow. All he knows so far, it's going to be a seed of the woman. So that leads to the Cain and Abel disaster. Satan's attempt to thwart that, which failed. And as we go through the scripture and God progressively reveals his plan, what is it? Among other things, it allows Satan to focus his attack. I don't know if you play chess, you know, but when, they, when your opponent castles, you now know which side of the board you're going to end up putting your attack on, aren't you? Till he castles, you don't know. But once he castles, you know where you're going to go. Satan, too. When God reveals his, his plan, that uh, it's going to be of, uh, from Abraham. Aha! Now we, can, we have to worry about the rest of the world who focus on Abraham. Aha, uh-huh, it's going to be Jacob, right? 
I mean, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, you know, right, as he focuses, the revelation, Satan can focus attack. Moses and the bulrushes, Pharaoh, trying to do what? Satan's attempt to wipe out the deliverer. And on it goes. All the way to Bethlehem, Herod killing the babes. Satanic. What? To thwart God's plan. The presentation of the Messiah that would redeem the world. Now, this whole schema, when God reveals it's going to be the house of David, that allows the house of David to be the subject of specific attack. Racial prejudice and um, uh, uh, these kinds of ideas are bad in every form, but prejudice, the anti-Semitism, is satanic in a very special way. And we learn that from Revelation 12. But I want to share with you something that's kind of fun. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 22. As you know, after Solomon, there was a civil war. We had the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And of course, the northern kingdom, things go from bad to worse. And the Assyrians take them under slavery. I've mentioned that. About a century later, roughly, Nebuchadnezzar rises to power and takes them, uh, or takes the southern kingdom. Because by then they declined pretty badly. If you somehow could chart this, the, the northern kingdom went down fast and gets judged. But the southern kingdom goes down, maybe not quite as fast, but it's in decay and moral, a moral mess. One of these kings, the last of the kings in a sense before the Babylonian captivity, a guy by the name of Jeconiah, and he's bad news. He's sometimes called Coniah, so don't let that confuse you. But starting about verse, in Jeremiah 22, starting about verse 24, As I live, saith the Lord, through Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, uh, uh, were the signet upon my right hand, yet I would pluck thee from there. I will give thee unto the hand of those who seek thy life, and into the hand of those whose face thou fearest, even the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And on he goes. God is not pleased with Jeconiah. In fact, God is so displeased that when you get to verse 30, God does an interesting thing. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless. He obviously has children, but what does God mean by that? A man that shall not prosper in his days, and no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. The superficial picture you might get, it hears God, and he's so angry that he makes, and I'll use this in quotations, a rash statement. Because what has God done here? God has pronounced a blood curse on Jeconiah. You say, well, so what? He's a bad news. Yes, but wait a minute, gang. He is the royal line. Down through David, through the kings, you can list them, you get to Jeconiah. I personally suspect that in the councils of Satan... They had a party because they figured, aha, now we got him. Because God himself has just, in his anger, pronounced a blood curse in Jeconiah. That's the royal line. The Messiah has got to come from the royal line of David. It has a blood curse on it. Okay, God, how are you going to get out of that one? Snicker. God's not surprised. He figured this out all from the beginning because in Genesis chapter 3.15, he tipped his hand. There's going to be a virgin birth. How does it get around that? Well, the way you get around that is to study the genealogies. And as you know, there's four Gospels. One of them, Mark, does not have a genealogy. The other three do. 
That surprised a lot of people because, wait a minute, I thought there were just two. Mark, Matthew has a genealogy. Luke has a genealogy. Where's the other one? John, the first three verses. It's a genealogy of a preexistent being. That sounds like an oxymoron, perhaps, but the idea is that Jesus Christ's preexistence is a form of a very mystical genealogy, the first open, the opening verses of the Gospel of John. I'll call it a genealogy. That's neither here nor there. The main point is there's two genealogies. Matthew has a genealogy. Matthew presents Jesus Christ as the Messiah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. How does he do that? As any Jew would, he starts with Abraham. Goes down through the line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. Gets down to David. Goes through the royal line. Through Solomon. And right on through to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. But wait a minute. Not the blood father. Does the blood curse on Jeconiah have any effect? Answer, uh uh-uh. Interesting. God promised David. David wanted to build God a house. And God says, David, you can't do it because you're a man of war. But i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to build you a house. And he's speaking in a pun. Because the Messiah is going to be of the house and lineage of David. And you and I think that's a pun. I mean, uh, a, uh, a tautology. They mean the same thing. No, they're not quite the same thing. And we figure that out when we look at Luke. Luke is a physician. Luke is interested in Jesus Christ as the son of man. Where does he start his genealogy? With Adam. Goes down through Adam, right on through the whole list, to Abraham. From Abraham to David, it's the same, no problem. But when we get to David, if we study it carefully, we notice something bizarre. Because Luke's genealogy does not go through Solomon. He takes a left turn, goes down through Nathan, a whole other line. And he ends up giving you the genealogy of Mary. Mary also was of the house of David. When you're in the Torah and study the daughters of Zahalafahad, Remember the five daughters that went to Moses and said, We have no husband and so forth. We want, when we get to the promised land, we want land too. So Moses institutes a very special procedure. When you get the promised land, you know, as long as you marry within the tribe, you'll have your, 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 your land. And strangely enough, it was C.I. Schofield that first recognized that the claims of Christ hang on that provision. Because that's the link between Mary, if you will, and because she's married within the tribe of Judah and so forth. And you can study that on your own. The net of it is. I love this because Satan is clever, resourceful, (laughs) but God is always ahead of him. And the whole blood curse in Jeconiah, I've gotten to the point where I sort of view it as God showing off. You know, blood curse in Jeconiah. What are you going to do that with Satan? (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. You know, I, uh, I, I find it hard to visualize Satan having war with someone who's got the game wired, who knows the end from the beginning. You talk about an exercise in futility. The virgin birth. I don't want to leave this subject before we make a couple of other comments. You know, I've mentioned this before, and I apologize if I'm rep- repetitive, but it just overwhelms me. You know, as, as, a, as a young man learning the Bible, I remember the first overwhelming insight was the whole notion that God, the creator of the universe, became man. I've just been awed by the fact that, um, I mean, it's just hard to visualize an infinite being living in infinite dimensions, constraining himself to become a three-dimensional being living on this earth and going through anything, let alone what Jesus went through. Mind-blowing. Hard. You can study it, you can hear about it, you can... It's hard to get your mind around that. That's an awesome idea. 
But then as you progress in your spiritual insight, in your reading of the Word, you discover more and more the enormous gap between man and God. Talk about extremes. Sinful man and a righteous God. As you begin to really understand that through the insight of the Scripture, that's your, you know, it, it really blows you away. And what finally really throws you is not that God became man. The amazing thing is that while we speak here this evening, while we're talking, there's a man on the throne of God. Think about that one. It's all because of the virgin birth. That he went through this elaborate, incredible... In fact, the scripture calls it his strange work of redemption. Somehow in all of this, I suspect that when we really get the perspective, it's God's ultimate achievement. The demonstration of infinite love. You know, you and I can imagine maybe in the, in the limits of our intellectual horizons, infinite power probably confront that most when we're in astronomy and study galaxies or energy left field, whatever. You can, each of us probably have our own way of visualizing infinite power. We also probably, at least intellectually, can give assent to the idea of infinite knowledge. God who knows everything. The question is, how do you demonstrate infinite love? How do you demonstrate infinite love? God's answer seems to be, as you create man and permit him to get himself into a predicament that requires nothing less than the death of God himself to pay for it. And he becomes man and performs that payment. And, you know, we often quote Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. For by grace ye are saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift. Right? Turn, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We quote that so often. And there's always a danger in a well-known verse is that it becomes so well-known we fail to really hear it. For by grace are ye saved through faith, verses 8 and 9. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace, not by law. Law is to show us the need. By grace. Law says you should do, you should not do. Grace says it is done. It is finished. It's complete. Why? Why did God go through the trouble of Isaiah and the virgin birth and the blood curse and all this business? Why did he bother? Because of verse 7. We always miss verse 7. We quote 2, 8, and 9 so often. Notice verse 7 because it tells us the reason God did all of this. The reason you were created in the first place, allowed to fall, and then redeemed. Why? That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You and I are demonstrations of God's infinite love for ages yet undisclosed. Interesting. Talk about a cosmic plan, huh? Man on the throne of God, all because of... Isaiah 10 through 16. But we'll, let's finish the chapter before the evening ends. The Lord shall bring upon, verse 17. Oh, excuse me, I guess I stopped verse 15. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. You and I miss that because we're not used to those idioms. Uh, this whole idea of butter and honey uh, is not a good thing. I mean, it's an idiom meaning poverty. 
That may sound strange to you, your ears and mine, but butter and honey is um, thickened milk and honey was the food of desert wanderers. And you and I miss that because butter and honey sounds good. It's used here in the sense of implying poverty. I know it sounds strange, but that's, uh, that seems to be the Hebrew idiom. Uh, and, you know, choose, refuse good and choose, uh, refuse evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken by both her kings. Now he's shifting gears here, you see, because he's talking, he's got his child here as an idiom. Different child we're talking about. Follow me? Different child. I know that sounds like a shift of gears, and it is, okay? This is shifting back to Ahaz now. Is going to be forsaken by both her kings. Verse 17, The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass that in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. The fly is an idiom for Egypt. You can go back to Exodus 10 if you like and tie all that together. But the main point, it's just a, it's just a figure of speech for, for Egypt. And you can tell by the context anyway. And, of course, the B for Assyria. Okay, and that same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired. That's an idiom for this king, see? He's calling him the razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, Shall say the head, the hair of the feet, and also consume the beard. <laughs> now, this hired razor, of course, is the king of Assyria. But what these three idioms that are going to be shaved refer to, it's, just, it's Isaiah's poetic language for referring to the removal of kingly authority, the removal of national identity, and the removal of the priesthood. See, the Nazarite was, when, he, when a guy took a Nazarite vow and was disgraced himself, he had to shave his head. That was a form of disgrace. Israel is set apart. And in this sense, a Nazarite nation is going to get shaved. That was a symbol of shame. A leper had to shave off his hair. We learn from Leviticus 14, verse 9. Okay, Israel has become leprous or sinful. That's what's implied here. And, of course, the Levitical service. The consumer beard, the Levitical service would cease. This, this, is a, this is a colorful way for Isaiah to communicate to that culture, hey, guys, it's over. The kingly authority is going to be stripped, the national identity is gone, and the priesthood is over. You guys are going into the, in the captivity. It came to pass that in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. Again, it's an idiom that's foreign to our ears, but it implies that's not enough. And shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give. He shall eat butter for the butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. I know it sounds like a strange idiom, but the point is it's impl- it's impl- it implies want. It shall come to pass then that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver. It shall even be for briars and thorns with arrows and bows. Shall men come there, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all the hills that shall be uh, hoed with the mattock, there shall not come there the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. And I think we'll stop at the end of chapter 7. We'll take chapter 8 next time.
It always intrigues me. On the one hand, you get weary sometimes reading through the Scripture and hearing judgment, this, and especially on cultures that you know are long past. And yet right in the middle of all of this, you'll find some incredible nuggets, and it's just like God to do that. Not that the moral tones are, not, are to be lost on us, because obviously the judgment that's coming upon Judah, predicted by Isaiah, applies to us, certainly morally. <laughs> and I'm, I'm fond of Billy Graham's classic remark about America. Some people ascribe it to California, particularly. <laughs> God doesn't judge America. You'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of the questions that we all would really like to understand is, uh, where is America? Certainly, as you look at our land and you look at the signs that God has uh, ordained as signposts, we get, pretty, get a pretty dismal outlook. America's strength is, uh, is uh, pretty argumentative. And in the, in the world scene, it looks like uh, things are... <laughs> Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And yet um, the good news is it's not clear, and I, I, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I think we do well to pray for our land. That's, of course, a whole other subject. But in any case, as we get into Isaiah, we're going to see more and more of not just Judah and Jerusalem. We're going to, he's going to start shifting his gears to the, to the nations around Jerusalem. He's going to broaden his scope. In fact, he's going to broaden his scope so dramatically that some of the forthcoming chapters are going to talk very specifically on exactly what's happening right now, today, here. And uh, that makes the book uh, very exciting. We're going to talk in chapter 8 about the overthrow of Assyria, Damascus and Syria and so forth. And all the way along, he'll keep reminding us of the believing remnant and their future. But he's also going to intersperse in this dirge of judgment incredible insights about the Messiah and what's coming forth. What's fascinating is Babylon hasn't even risen to power, but by the time we get to chapter 13 and 14, he's going to describe the destruction of an empire that hasn't risen yet when he's writing. Kind of interesting passage. Book of Isaiah. Prediction of the virgin birth. Something that we read glibly at Christmas time and whatever, and yet uh, how interesting it is that God calls his shots in every detail. Over 333 prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus Christ in His first coming. And it's a fascinating study to go, obviously some of them are very technical, but most of them are very vivid, very dramatic, very verifiable, and worth your study. But what's most interesting, if there's 333 prophecies of His, of his first coming, there are over 500 prophecies that are yet future to be fulfilled in his second coming. And he's going to come back twice, by the way. Once for the church and once for Israel. It's going to be very, very interesting. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. What does this mean to you? You know, we've, we've spent some time together this evening and we've uh, wandered through some parts of Isaiah, some trivia, some insights, hopefully. But the real issue, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was one of three things, as, are often, as they often point out. He either was not the Son of God and didn't know that he wasn't, a lunatic. If you can reconcile that with history, uh, that's, that, that's amazing. Or, he wasn't the Son of God and knew that he wasn't. 
That makes him a liar. Can you, recon- can you reconcile that with history? Hardly. He's either a lunatic liar or possibly he was who he said he was, the Lord. And obviously, any examination of the facts of history, every time you write a check, you put a date on it, you attest to the fact that all of world history centers around the event of his life, Jesus Christ. We glibly get into the Word and we learn all these cliches and we sort of nod in agreement and from time to time we get excited about something and maybe even dig a little further. Boy, the one thing I'd like to confront you with tonight is your personal reaction to this son born of a virgin 19 centuries ago. Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Is he the consuming element in your life? Well, gee, he's first on the list. He wants to be first on the list of one. You see, that's the difference between just being your Savior and being your Lord. And it's, it's hard sometimes because we, we spend, we're interested enough that we spend time in these studies and we do a little digging. And yet, we also get so enmeshed in cliches and platitudes and, and idioms that get so familiar they lose their sharpness, their, 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 their vitality. The person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of this book, God's Word. Definition of truth is when the Word and the deed become one. God's Word, God is, God's promises over thousands of years Incarnate, alive, real, and completed his mission on your behalf and mine. But there's an issue. Do you accept it? Do you embrace it? Do you receive it? Is anyone here tonight that doesn't personally know Jesus Christ as their Savior? I encourage you to do any one of several things. In the privacy of your own will as we bow for prayer, make that commitment. And he will supernaturally deal with it. He will take on the obligation of revealing himself to you. If any man will do his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether I speak of God or whether I speak of just myself. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.